And good evening, everybody. I'm Simon, if you don't know me. I'm a pastor here at Trinity. been here nearly a year. And um, I was just thinking about the highlights of my week with uh, my row of uh, people. And uh, thinking about what I've done this weekend. And I've managed to, to try baked camembert for the first time. I don't know if anyone's tried that for the first time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just one of those things you try and go, wow, well, how have I missed out on this? Really good. Um, but the best bit about it really was, I suppose, being with the friends that I was there with and haven't seen them for a couple of years properly and actually had a conversation where we've been able to catch up. And it was like we just left off, you know, exactly where we, we last seen each other. And that was just really special. And I don't know if you're enjoying, you know, spending time with friends at the moment in terms of uh, the life groups and looking at Ephesians. I hope you're uh, getting to dig into this and being challenged by it, being uh, matured by it, growing in it, uh, and growing in your faith and your spirituality. Um, and if you're not part of one of those groups or you haven't had time to go home and discuss this, you know, you can do that on your own. You can get a Bible open and spend some time in His Word. And I really encourage you to feast on Ephesians. It's really deep, and uh, we've been enjoying it a lot as a team and trying to preach on it. Um, yeah, so really special. And last week, uh, Hills brilliantly covered a huge section on Ephesians 4 and 5, uh, looking at the put-off and the put-on parts of our lives, uh, how we should be putting on the right shirt, uh, a shirt of holiness, and not to be tempted to keep our old spiritual clothes, or old clothes even. And Paul is very clear in this as we try to live the right way. And this week we're going to move forward to the part of Ephesians which is titled Instructions for Christian Households. And it's probably one of the most discussed passages, holds a lot of tension of the potential controversy within it. And tonight I want to give a bit of context to this passage. It's really easy to gloss over bits of scripture that sit a bit more uncomfortably with us. Um, but tonight, from a foundation of knowing that God is good for us, let's wrestle with it together. So let's read from Ephesians 5, verse 21. Feel free to get a phone out or a Bible if you've brought one. I see less and less Bibles now. It just seems to be on a phone. Even I've converted to this. Uh, so I'm keeping up with the times. So from verse 21... Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. His body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you 
also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. Okay. <laughs> so, starting at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So previously, the King James had this in an earlier section. But we need to remember that uh, Paul wrote these as letters, and they're not as chapters and verses, and they would have flowed without any subheadings. So from verse 21, Paul is, of course, still writing to the church uh, in, Ephesus, in Ephesus and from a jail cell or house arrest in Rome. And he instructs uh, Christians on how to live a life worthy of the gospel. In light of this uh, amazing good news that they have received, in light of the gospel story that then reshapes every part of our story. How then should we live? How do we live as married people, as single people, as people in the workplace, as children of parents or parents of children? How then should we live a life worthy of the gospel and the calling that we have received? It's a good question. Uh, the household code is the title of this. And so Paul speaks to this in this verse, and he speaks to it in regards to what he calls the household code. What is the household code? In the ancient world as today, there was a well-known code of conduct, conduct for how society should function, particularly around three relationships. We've got husbands and wives, we've got parents and children, and we've got masters and slaves. And slavery in the ancient world was an awful thing. But it's probably a little different to, say, slavery in North America that we may know a little more in the 1800s. And slaves in the old world, the ancient world, could still be doctors or lawyers, but it means that they weren't free. And we can still kind of understand the passage around slaves and masters as around this employee-employer relationship. So slightly different to today. All of these relationships, marriage, parenting, and work, were all conducted under one roof. Think back to 2020, and we had the lockdown. Many of us got a taste of this with all three of these relationships back under one roof. Wasn't that a delightful challenge for some of us? Many of us, even. But the head of these relationships in the ancient world was the same person. Any wild guesses who that might have been? It's the husband, the father, the master. It's the man, isn't it? He's doing all of this. 
the boss over his wife, his children, and the boss over his slaves. And generally, the, the power dynamic was so unbalanced, it's coercive, it's toxic. And since the fall, relationships have become twisted. You just need to read Genesis. As you read that, you see there's a lot of really messed up relationships within it. Uh, what goes wrong in the world when sin enters in to that world. And so the fall, God's good and original intention for relationships between husbands and wives, parents and children, and the employers and employees, it gets distorted. Toxic. <laughs> Unbalanced relationships. And they can have a horrendous effect in homes, our friendships, our families, our workplaces, and even the church. But it's the unholy trio of that abusive power, the, the sex, the money, these things that start to rear their ugly head as selfishness and brokenness play out in the cruelest of ways. And in Roman Greek culture, the world in which Jesus came into, women, children and servants were treated as mere objects to be used. The great philosopher Aristotle, he speaks of household management in some work called Politics. And he addresses the relationships of husband to wife, parent to children, and master to slave. Aristotle thought that these relationships needed to work for society to work well. And the Greeks were very proud in their culture, in their society. So that, that sounds good so far. Sounds like he's on to something. But in this first century time, it was deemed that only the husband, the father, and the master were to be viewed as truly human. It's pretty awful, isn't it? Aristotle, who we uphold in our universities as the founder of Western philosophy, did not think women had the same rational capacity as men. This is the beloved Aristotle that we're kind of talking about here. And he wrote there, hence by nature, there are various classes of rulers for the free rules the slave, the male, the female, and the man, the child. So it's just the way it was. Some would say it's just the way it still is today. So the Greek man expects his wife to raise his children, manage aspects of the household, but faithfulness was out of the question. This is a well-known Greek man around the, the time of Jesus, and he talks about having a wife to bear him uh, legitimate children and then having prostitutes to meet his daily needs. And that was kind of just the way society functioned, the way the world worked. So the household codes, wives subjugated, that means under dominion or control to their husbands. Children subjugated to their parents. Servants subjugated to their masters. Just the way it was, it all flows in one direction. But Jesus came to turn this culture on its head. Already in Israel, there's a high ethic around treating other people because people were created in the image of God. It comes from Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created. And that's the basics of Christian ethics because everyone was created in the image of God. It means every single person you meet has dignity, has worth, and the fingerprints and the DNA of their heavenly father on them. So there it's meant to be inherent dignity for humanity. 
created in the image of God, flowing from a foundation ethics of Israel's creation narrative. But undoubtedly, the, the ancient world, around the time of Jesus, was violent. It was an abusive place. And then Jesus. And then Jesus. Jesus comes in. He enters the scene, the word made flesh. He dwells amongst us, coming in grace and truth. He tramples over every social boundary with women, with sinners, with outcasts, with children, and the only ethic the world has ever known that had celebrated power and sex and the rigid classes is abolished as he comes to seek and save the lost, as he comes to serve, not to just be served. So, is, so it also is in John 15.15, uh, 15, if you want to turn there. The most powerful man to ever live says this to the disciples. I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. I'm paraphrasing there. But just let that sink in. I am no longer calling you servants. I call you friends. And on the cross, he undermines the powers that be, not by fighting them, but by submitting to them, even to death on a cross, as a common criminal in that moment. And what looks like a loss, what looks like defeat, it gets turned into a victory with the resurrection of the Son of God. Let's just think about children. Children in society had no place, but we read that Jesus embraced, despite even the objections of his own followers. In Matthew 19, 13, it says, Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked him, rebuked them. Why did the disciples try to stop Jesus? Did they believe that children had no value? And the next verse, Jesus says, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And Jesus is ushering in God's kingdom here. He's turning things upside down to disrupt what is culturally acceptable at that time. In John 2, it says as people, uh, where people were buying and they're starting to sell things in the temple to make profit. And you may know the story. And we see the uh, enemy clothing, the money lending in religion. Um, so the, let me start again. We're seeing the money lending in that arena and almost trying to cover it up, trying to legitimize what's going on um, by just putting it in a temple. And Jesus turns over the temples to show his anger and frustration at the culture. J. John, Reverend J. John, says maybe Jesus wasn't turning the tables upside down, but he's turning them the right way up, the right side up. Jesus had this same countercultural, revolutionary approach with life over death, light over darkness, holiness and wholeness overturning defilement and disease. And we see this in 1 Corinthians where it talks about the gospel being foolishness to the Greeks, weakness to the Jews. And then it says, but to us who have been saved is the wisdom and the power of God. Wisdom and power of God. That's Christianity 101. Because what the world sees as foolishness, 
and what the world sees as weakness, we come around and worship as the power and the wisdom of God. And so slowly but surely, a new dynamic of grace enters the world. And the kingdom of God is advancing and his spirit-filled believers are following the way of Jesus. And then we see this, this kingdom come into the world as believers serve the poor, as believers empty themselves of power, get rid of wealth. We stand on the side of the abused and the oppressed. And in the very way, the mission of Jesus is continuing into the world. It's in this context that we can see what's happening to the household code of the ancient world. The spirit of Jesus Christ begins to fill his people so into the Jewish, Greek and the Roman world, it all get turned, gets turned upside down. So what's this passage saying? We read it and it might seem uncomfortable. The idea of submission has been twisted, it's been manipulated by man since the fall. But submission is when we lower ourselves. As Tim said this morning, it's when we come under. We have to come under. We have to humble ourselves. We have to be lower. Just like Jesus did when he, he washed his followers' feet. Just as Jesus did when he embraced the children. Just as Jesus did when he died on the cross for our sins. Submission is not about a master dominating his servant, but about showing outrageous, extravagant love to one another, guarding and protecting one another. A husband should hold fast to his wife by living in obedience and a life of worship to God, then lead his wife in that same obedience to God. In a church, we uphold and respect our leaders. In a workplace, we seek to serve those who we share an office with, not for personal gain or promotion, but for the uplifting of God. And the Bible talks about Christ's relationship with the church, to be like a groom's relationship to his bride, a relationship of utter sacrifice, devoted love. It's a relationship that we're asked to follow. It's a relationship to each other. It may be in marriage, it may be in the church family, and it's even to those in your workplace. I came across a story that I would like to finish with this evening, but before I do, I just want to read from uh, and unpack a little, actually, the Ephesians 5, verse 31, just that verse. And I'm going to read it from the ESV translation, so it's the English Standard Version, not the NIV. And it says, just a little change. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And you might have uh, united or another word for it uh, in the NIV, but hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I'm going to read it another way. Therefore, you shall... So read that again, but I'll put some other words over the top of it. Therefore, you shall leave your old ways and hold fast to the church and Christ and the church shall become one flesh and I, I just kind of got these words overlaid over it as I was reading it and I, maybe that was God speaking to me I'm not saying they're completely accurate but that was how I interpreted it and you can find your own way of interpreting that 
and look at commentaries and you know go into it in life groups. But this is tying together some of Ephesians 4. It's from last week. The idea of wearing that new football strip, the strip of holiness, taking off our old ways, our old strip. Our new calling is to Christ, it's to the church. And the interesting words in that version, hold fast, they're from a nautical term, a Norwegian nautical term, where a sailor would need to hold on very hard to the ropes. You might have seen that sort of image of uh, the knuckles tattooed with the word hold fast on. It's conveniently eight letters. And um, you're holding on hard to the ropes so that during a storm you didn't have a loose rope swinging around. Um, and causing the sails to flap in the wind, but also it could potentially hurt someone on board because that rope whips around and hits you and knocks you over or knocks you overboard. So I started to research this phrase a little, and I found several definitions. I'm going to read all of them, so here we go. Uh, To bear down, stay the course, do what is right, see it through, no surrender, the deepest of intimacy, to keep on persistently, agree with what God says despite circumstance. And then for those that are married here, a husband should hold fast to his wife by living in obedience and a life of worship to God. Then lead your wife in that same obedience to God. Remain tightly secured, a locked door, to guard and protect, but also means to hold forth in the sense of to make known and proclaim, giving heed to or fixing one's attention upon. Who are we fixing our attention on? Who are we proclaiming? Who or what do we listen to? And here's the story that I want to finish with. It's quite a sweet story. It's about a man named Robert McQuilkin. And the thing he always wanted to do was to become a principal of a college. And eventually he did. But then his wife, Muriel, got Alzheimer's disease. Her health degenerated to the point where he couldn't look after her and be principal of the college at the same time. So at the age of 59, he decides to give up his position. His colleagues couldn't believe it. They were saying things to him like, she doesn't recognise you. She doesn't even know who you are. Just carry on. Someone else could look after her. And he said, she might not know who I am, but I know who she is. She's the woman that I made a promise to. Until death us do part. She is such a delight for me. I don't have to care for her. I get to care for her. That is Christian marriage. That's Christ's love for the church. It's how we should love the church and each other.